Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, February 10th, 2012. This week, episode 235 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hey, it's good to be back. And of course, assisting us at the controls is Roxy V, Val Bender. Good morning. All right, of course, joining us by phone will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segments include the IAQ radio trivia question. We've got an interview with Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Dr. Shoemaker's back, and we uh, have some new information from him. Talk a little genomics today. We'll have our halftime, as usual, and then we will finish the day with our roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To listen live, just follow the link on your show invitation that says go to the show or go to the iaqradio.com website. There's a button at the top that says go to the show. You can also download past shows from our website. You go again to the go to the show link. It takes you to the Talk Shoe website where you can download or stream live. And of course, you can stream all previous shows live from our homepage. You can also download shows from iTunes. Don't forget to check out the Z-Man's blog every week after the show. That's on the IAQ Radio website at the blog link. And we'll also send a copy of uh, the last week's show from now on on the uh, show invitation. We also have certification, uh, continuing education credits for people for IICRC 
and ACAC. ABIH has changed their policy. You can still get them for the show, but you have to self-certify. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Z-Man, today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submit your answers very easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, text in your answer. Congratulations. <laughs> to the one and only, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil from Occupational Health Consultants, Inc., Carnegie, PA, for being the first listener to identify PERM, for the mass rate of water vapor flow through one square foot of a material or construction of one grain per hour induced by a vapor pressure gradient between two surfaces of one inch of mercury or in units that equal that flow rate. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, February 10th, 2012 has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their new electronic membership category at their website, www.triska.org. Now for this week's trivia question. Name the term adapted in 1920 by Hans Winkler, professor of botany at the University of Hamburg. It's a Greek word that means I become, I am born to come into being. Back to you, Joe. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Cliff. All right. This week's guest is Dr. Richie Shoemaker. Dr. Shoemaker is a medical doctor, MD, in Pocomoke, Maryland. Uh, Dr. Shoemaker has joined us on several occasions in the past to talk about water-damaged buildings and people who work and live in water-damaged buildings and the types of medical problems they have as a result of these exposures in water-damaged buildings. He's kind of coined in the, the term chronic inflammatory response syndrome, and that, that acronym is CIRS for water-damaged buildings. And this week we brought him on to talk to us a little bit about some new genomics information that he presented at last year's scientific conference on bioaerosols, fungi, bacteria, and mycotoxins in the indoor and outdoor environments at the, uh, what was the bioaerosols conference? I think it was the sixth bioaerosols conference up in Saratoga Springs. Let's get some music for Dr. Shoemaker. Okay, Dr. Shoemaker, do we have you on the line? Hello? Hello. Okay, we've got you. Great. All right. Welcome. Thanks for joining us again. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to hear the 
wonderful new sound effects from Valerie Bender and familiar old <laughs> voices you. as well. <laughs> oh, you made her. You, you're going to get her kind of big-headed She's over She's watching. Uh, <laughs> she does a great job for us. I, I, I messed up a little. I forgot to bring your bio with me, but I, I did my best on it. Did you actually coin the, the label chronic inflammatory response syndrome? Was I accurate there? Well, not really. It, it comes from a, a coding book that we used in, in, in medicine called the ICD-9. So that, you know, this, this is uh, the systemic, systemic inflammatory response syndrome was first <clears throat> developed to describe what goes on with illnesses from a toxin released in bacterial sepsis. And that used to refer just to an acute illness, but we know that there is a chronic illness as well. Uh, from some septic patients. So if you kind of call it chronic, it helps you understand it's not the same. But the fascinating issue is as we learn more every day in immunology that so many illnesses are systemic in what injury is presented as a uh, illness with one name or another. You know, if you talk about a macrophage illness or a, a T regulatory cell illness, they they all are systemic. They all linger for a long time. They're all they're chronic, and they're all inflammatory. So that as we get further into the idea of unifying mechanisms, and we're going to talk about the role of, of gene activation as is critical here, you can't just say, well, it's, it's lupus and it's an autoimmune disease and, and let it go with that. We need to know what the mechanisms are because the mechanisms are what we want to fix. If you say it's a chronic inflammatory response syndrome, it puts you in a ballpark of knowing post-response, exponential response to a very small amount of an initiating factor that usually is a toxin or an inflammatory. Okay. Well, that's, that's appreciated. And also, I, I wanted to quickly mention, we were talking a little before the show, and you mentioned the book. Uh, it was Mold Warriors, the, the title of the last book, as I understand it. Can you just... Tell listeners a little bit about how that's gone so far. I believe it's been, what, six months now that's been out? Well, Mold Warriors was published in 2005, and oh. then in December 2010, uh, I published Surviving Mold. Uh, and people like Greg Weatherman kid me a little bit because it's too long. Uh, and he, they call it Mold in Peace, just for a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a chapter in there, too, so that's why it's too long. There you go. But uh, that book has, has taken off. It's... Uh, it's sold an awful lot, primarily from the Surviving Mold website. Uh, if people want to look at it on Amazon, they can they can do that as well. And what is the Surviving Mold website, just so listeners know? www.survivingmold.com. Perfect. All right. And then we also you also mentioned that you now have what five hundred about five hundred doctors that have kind of been you know uh, collaborating a little bit or at least are in, in communication with each other since that publication? One of the uh, goals in addition to uh, research and, and diagnosis and treatment of people injured by water damaged buildings is to help educate the public uh, and the book is an attempt at that through the website but we really need to educate physicians and so on the website is a physician section that physicians can sign up. You'd, you do need to send a copy of your CV, so you know, you're not going to be uh, one of the bad guys just listening in. But it's it's a confidential section in which people can, you know, present cases and discuss the problems with diagnosis and treatment, uh, knowing that they're talking to their peers. And there's been about 500 people that have signed up. Great. All right, Cliff, do you want to? 
yeah, get things started um, with I, we got to get sure, off a little sure. bit. Sure, um, sure. You know, Doctor, can you please give the listeners a little background on genomics? Whenever you hear in a word ending in O M I C S or omics, it basically means has to do with what the first part of the word is. So it's a it's a made up word. But when you hear genomics, it should make you think of something to do with genes. And if we go back to Watson and Crick back in the 50s, people were able to show that our genetic material is contained in DNA, which is held in chromosomes, very organized, tight structure, that then is can be copied or a gene can be transcribed and direct production of proteins. Well, the mechanism that DNA uses to transcribe results in production of a carrier called messenger RNA. So it's like an inverse image of, of the DNA for a gene. The messenger RNA will leave the nucleus, go to the cytoplasm, hook up in one of the structures in the cytoplasm called a ribosome, where eventually the message is translated uh, through other RNAs to make a protein. And there's about 22,000 genes in this huge genome that we have. And it's been interesting, when the human genome was sequenced, people thought we're looking at what was genetic material of genes, and it was about 2% of the total. What was all the rest? A junk nucleotide, so it was called. And actually, there's something to that junk. It's not junk at all. There are additional copies of kind of genetic material called microRNA. MicroRNA, we now know, uh, is uh, just incredibly old in, in, in evolution. And microRNA helps control function of messenger RNA. And so the idea here, when we talk about genomics, is that differential gene activation takes place when people are getting sick from any kind of illness, but especially uh, from water-damaged buildings. We, we know about the change in what's called the proteomics, or their protein. So there's got to be gene activation, but there is a a, a kind of a graphite rod in, in the nuclear fire, so to speak, that microRNA can control gene expression, but also the implication is that abnormal microRNA, which should be controlling mRNA, can actually lead to illness presentation of its own. So when you hear genomics, it's not just DNA, it's not just messenger RNA, it's not ribosomal RNA, but the nuclear and the source of my incredible excitement is microRNA, because not only are these compounds now regulating maybe 10 to 100 different kinds of mRNA themselves, but there's only about 1,200 of them that have been identified, and these little tiny pieces of nucleotide material are regulatory, and they are abnormal in disease states. If you then look at this idea of profiling absence of regulation in disease states, it leads pretty quickly to correcting abnormal regulation found in disease states. And that's that's where we are right now. That's fascinating. Now, you've got these 1,200 RNA. I assume that's, the that's I think, the tip of the iceberg. Am I accurate there And that we're going to learn? No, I don't think there's going to be a lot more identified. You know, obviously, I'm not an expert in, in microRNA research. But in the things that are published, I don't think they're going to be finding too many more of these kind of super regular, super regulatory compounds. Okay, okay, but that 
there was so there was two percent of the total um, active genes were the, the active. gene for blue eyes, the gene for hemochromatosis amounts to about two percent of the total DNA. The rest is still being unveiled. That's the some of that aspect, rest, okay. the ninety-eight percent, is microRNA, and I, I think it's just going to be fascinating as we identify what else is in that junk sequence. I don't pretend to know that, but other people are looking at it as an incredibly hot issue. Interesting. Okay. And then, go ahead. I, I just I just wanted to say there's two percent that's active. And then the other 98% is considered the junk? Yep. Okay, thanks. Interesting. Okay, and out of that 98%, 1,200 were these microRNA. And that has that been a big focus of your research lately? Uh, in, in the last six months, absolutely. Because what we want to be able to do now, we, we've been collecting uh, special DNA tubes or, or, or gene tubes called PAX gene tubes. So that when someone comes to my office and they have blood work drawn, one of these tubes has been drawn, and if you process it right and you simply invert it and mix it up uh, and then let it sit for a few hours and stick it in a freezer, what you do is prevent breakdown of messenger RNA uh, for indeterminate basis. If you don't use the special tube, your messenger RNA is destroyed. But we have had accumulating... Uh, several thousand patients of many different diseases and many different stages of diseases sitting in the freezer waiting for the time to do mRNA analysis. We started doing that a few years ago, and recently now with the advent of more affordable microRNA technology, we basically have a fingerprint, a genomic fingerprint, for people that are control patients that are healthy, uh, people that are sickened by exposure to water-damaged buildings, people that are colonized by coagulase-negative staffs that are biofilm formers, uh, and then people at their various stages of treatment. But we know there are many things that affect genomic activity, particular mycotoxins, uh, people who are going to be pretty quick to talk about those. Yes, they have genomic effects, and that's one way we can separate, say, a ciguatera or fish toxin poison from a mold poison person, but then we can look as well at what beta-glucans do. We can look at direct effect with lack of basal active intestinal polypeptide or VIP, and we get a genomic signature of that. So we put all these factors in, combining the patient analysis into genomics, we can pretty clearly show this inflammatory process uh, is going on with just one tube of blood. And, and, and Joe and Cliff, i got to tell you, um, if I had... Uh, Pax gene tubes, and I go into a school that's, that's full of water down in the basement, and the crawl space air is ventilated through the school. I should be able to draw a thousand tubes from a thousand students and tell you which 250 students are likely to be sick. And that would be really, I, let me just ask, how long have, you know, this has only been going on fairly recently, all these, you know, tremendous breakthroughs and all this mountain of information. Can you give us an idea of how long it's been going on? Uh, you know, what, what the, it's sort of like, you know, I've heard every five years that the, the medical knowledge, you know, changes or doubles or maybe triples. Uh, can you give us some idea of, of your thoughts on that? I think if we look at some of the ideas of plotting versus leaping in science that Thomas Kuhn talked about in Structures of Scientific Revolutions, it, it really is applicable to what we see now. You know, Ten years ago, the human genome was not even sequenced. 
and I don't know how many billion dollars was spent, and then somebody do it faster than the government did. But what it what it showed us is that people like Francis Collins, who, who set this up, are thinking of a brand new paradigm. And when we look at what genes tell us, this is a gold mine that that is is a treasure trove of of information. We just have to figure out how to use it. The microRNA stuff is is very recent. There are clinical trials now going on with microRNAs to treat hepatitis C and dilated cardiomyopathy and a blood disease called polycythemia vera. Uh, I think within a couple of years, when we know full well that microRNA can be manipulated, uh, we will take those thousand tubes from the school and then identify which kids need which particular microRNAs to to start feeling better after we take care of their inflammatory stuff. I mean, this is this this is not a uh, a thing of three years or five years. It's like, here's this insight, and boom. You know, much like, how did you treat infectious disease before penicillin? You know, so you had penicillin, and boom, suddenly there's a huge bit of more information. It's fascinating. Now, look, you, you mentioned a couple of other medical maladies that are being, you know, helped along by the use of genomics, and and I know you, you mentioned sepsis early on. I've always had a question about sepsis. Is, is that any better understood now? I mean, I, my brother had sepsis when he was in the hospital. They told me it was one of the leading causes of, of people dying in, in intensive care units. And I'm just curious, do you, is, and my understanding was it was like as a bacterial overload, essentially, and they really didn't understand much more than that at that point. But maybe I'm wrong. What can you tell me a little no, you, more? No, you are, you are right on the button, and... and consistently over the years, you, you guys have, have always been, been very prescient in, in your thinking, and so I congratulate you. One of the questions that, that we were given as medical students is, what's the difference between bacteremia, presence of bacteria in the blood, versus sepsis? I mean, every time you brush your teeth or you go to the bathroom, you are going to have bacteria in your blood. Well, why don't we all die of sepsis every time we brush our teeth? Well, the answer is the host inflammatory response is not necessarily admit, initiated uh, by bacteria in your blood after brushing your teeth, but they are initiated if there is a particular different kind of organism that is not one that lives inside your body, but is one coming from outside your body that brings antigens that your body doesn't like, and your body is going to have an overwhelming inflammatory response to these foreign antigens. This is the critical thing that people have missed forever, uh, it seems, and in some, some sides of this argument about human illness from water damage buildings. This is not a dose-response relationship at all. This is a host response, an overwhelming exponential response to a few initiating antigens that are foreign that then interact to prevent antibody formation and clearance of those antigens. So with sepsis, the initial phases of your, your loved one in you know, death's doorstep in the ICU will involve pro-inflammatory cytokine responses and anti-inflammatory cytokine responses. We now know about TH17 cytokine responses. We know that there is coagulation abnormalities, complement abnormalities, and they all interact one with another, and they all turn on gene activation in a sequential may, way in some illnesses, in a massive, almost simultaneous way, in some illnesses like sepsis. So we think now of sepsis of if you have 
elevated amounts of an anti-inflammatory cytokine like IL-10, uh, that's a good idea. You want to dampen down the inflammatory response. But then too much IL-10 is not immune suppressive anymore. It is immune paralytic, which is one of the reasons of defective antigen presentation in, in, the, in the mold illness case people. So that the sepsis model for acute illness led directly to the immunological advances that identified the chronic element. And, you know, every every... Every month you get a immunology today or reviews of nature immunology. It's incredible to find more acronyms with more substances that no one's ever heard of, and yet there's 50 papers on them. And so it's, it is fast-moving. It is, and it's tough to keep up with, let me tell you. Uh, but I, I love it. I enjoy talking about it with other people and, and with you as well, and, and it's, it's a lot of fun. But I've got um, – let me – go to one other question then i've got two text questions i want to let the listeners know i'll get to those in just a minute one of the questions i had i went to indoor air 2011 and we we saw uh dr craig venter speak and and he had been a part of sequencing the human genome and then he went on and, and did some sequencing of the other genes within the human body that weren't part of our body necessarily but were living on and in our body in that they were from fungi and bacteria etc what role do you see those playing? Uh, in other words, like the human flora, not necessarily our innate, um, you know, components of our body. What role do you see them playing, if any, in this chronic inflammatory uh, response syndrome? Another excellent question. We know full well that included in the human genome are a number of viral genomes. Uh, there was some argument about chronic fatigue being related to a retrovirus or, you know, the XMRV or one of these things. These, these viruses have been intercalating themselves in our DNA, you know, since, probably since we were born. But it is the regulation of gene transcription that prevents those intercalated DNAs from foreign organisms from causing human illness. If there is a problem and these foreign DNAs start being replicated, well, then microRNA has the capability of controlling that secondarily. But to look at your, your discussion about Dr. Venter's work, we know that organisms can live in us and not hurt us. They're very happy uh, to be not creating disease but still getting what they want to live. The gut is the biggest source, I would imagine. But our work is focused on organisms deep in the nasopharynx. There we find unusual biofilm formers, and the biofilm creates an environment like, like an igloo, so to speak, that these individual bacteria that should be planktonic when they're free-moving, just kind of sorting uh, through, the, through the outer space of their own life, doing everything on their own, when they start forming biofilm and they live in this big house, they differentiate to have shared metabolic functions so that you're not asking one bacteria to do everything. You're asking the group of bacteria each chip in a little bit. They are functioning as a multicellular organism living deep in your nose, and we know they release compounds that change our genomic activity and change our microRNA. So your question is right on the button. I've told you for years, and anybody who would listen to follow my protocols, do the deep nasal culture with an API staff. Otherwise, you're missing the boat. Because if you don't eradicate those organisms, you're not going to get better. Well, we know they make uh, they stimulate inflammatory cytokine responses. 
Well, now we know the genomic effects of these things. And if I can find it doing cultures for 50 bucks or 80 bucks, whatever it costs, what's going on in the gut? Tell me about autism, Leah. Tell me about enterococcus and chronic fatigue. Tell me about, you know, Clostridia bolti. Those are ones that have some names. But the metabolomics, another omics I'm telling you about, looking at organisms unnamed doing unknown things in the gut is, we know more about the Marianas Trench with 35,000 feet down below the ocean surface than we do with organisms in the gut. <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you treat that biofilm up in the up in the sinus, up in the nasal cavity there? That uh, what what would be you know, if somebody can't even go to the doctor, is there any? You know, I, I've seen people use neti pots, for instance. There's these sprays with the uh, uh, biofilm's going to laugh at the neti pot. It's going to laugh at nasal steroids. It's going to laugh at at, at chromalin. Uh, there are protocols. We don't have much time, but there's protocols that I use that are published that are on the Surviving Mold website. And I would suggest people take a look at that. Uh, right now, we use an 11-step process uh, for treatment of people injured by water-damaged buildings. Uh, removal from exposure is the first. Uh, if they've got an abnormality in visual contrast sensitivity testing, then they get a month of cholestyramine or well call, which we continue until VCS is corrected. But step three is eradication of these methicillin-resistant coagulase-negative staphs. Uh, these guys are... Are not your mother's coagulant staff that, that we knew about in the 70s. They're not the ones that live normally on the skin. Uh, they are distinctly genomically active. And you know, if you, if you find one guy causing an illness in your nose that doesn't create nasal symptoms, you know, how many other guys we got? <laughs> exactly. Well, let me ask this then: If you have two people, one, and I, I'll, I'm going to get I'm moving this into the DNA testing, and and you know what. Um, what fingerprint people have that that seem to succumb to the water damage, you know, building illnesses, as opposed to those that don't. Let's say you've got two people; they've both got this this uh, biofilm in their sinuses, the same, you know, the the same bacteria, um, same problem. But one is more susceptible to the water damage building problem, and the other is not. They've got the right, you know, gene code or whatever. Or the wrong one, I guess we could say. What, how would that present itself differently in those two people? Would one maybe just have, you know, sinus problems and allergies and the other would get, you know, very, very ill from the, um, you know, immune system problems? Well, let's, let's go back to the basics. These organisms are called commensals. They don't create disease. They don't create allergy. They don't create nasal symptoms. They don't create runny nose. They don't cause sinusitis. They don't cause headache. They don't cause pressure in, uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in the head at any time. Okay. These organisms are happy to sit there, but one other factor you need to know about is that mucous membranes are tightly controlled by innate immune affectors, and one of those is my old friend, melanocyte-stimulating hormone, or MSH. We almost never, ever find these biofilm-forming, methicillin-resistant organisms. These are not staph aureus. This is not staph aureus at all. These are, these are coagulase-negative staph. They're, they're different groups. You almost never find them in people who have normal MSH. Okay. MSH controls mucous membranes in upper airway and lung and gut and helps maintain integrity of membrane surfaces. Now, it also affects skin, where it was first found, hence melanocyte or the cell-making pigment, but it also has to do with regulation of inflammation uh, in blood and in brain as well. So our group of people 
that you that you're talking about, one with coagnate staff, that person's likely to be low in MSH. And the person with normal MSH is not likely to have the coagnate staff. If both are low MSH and both have got a methicillin resistant organism, both will need to have that organism eradicated to help restore genomic integrity. Now, along with that, with MSH deficiency, people will also lose regulation of vasoactive intestinal polypeptide, or VIP. And VIP deficiency creates a genomic signature. And indeed, when we use VIP replacement, which to me has been the, 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 the godsend of all godsends in therapy, uh, we now can see a genomic fingerprint of VIP suppressing abnormal microRNA that was there at the beginning of this illness. Gotcha. Now, let me, what I'd like to do is tell our listeners we have to break and thank our sponsors, but Dr. Shoemaker did just go into a little bit about the, the, I've got a question here I just want to point out. Does the DNA testing indicate who is sick or who has the potential to become sick? And I think you've just gone over a couple of your markers that you look at. But what I'd like to do is when we come back from the break, kind of break that down for our listeners so they can get an idea of what you're looking for within people okay. to determine that. All right, great. Thank yeah. you. We'll be right back, everybody. Hang in there. Thanks to our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. Net Claims Now, providing insurance billing services for the restoration industry for fire, water, mold, and reconstruction billing. Learn more about them at www.netclaimsnow.com Indoor Environment Connections the newspaper for the IAQ industry subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com John Don Products where restoration and abatement contractors shop visit them at www.johndon.com Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com 
and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back with the second half of our show with Dr. Richie Shoemaker. We've been talking about chronic inflammatory response syndrome, water damage buildings, genomics, and it's been fascinating. Dr. Shoemaker, do we have you back? Yes, sir. Great. Now, I've got a comment first from a listener, and it said, The overwhelming response only occurs in those who have acquired the hypersensitivity to the environmental antigen or trigger. Would you agree with that statement? It seems a little, little vague to me. Uh, we know full well that there is a profound uh, genetic susceptibility to this illness uh, so that three people or four people in, in the same room can have a variety of initial responses antigenically, but it is the genetics or the, the immune response genes that determine how the antigen then leads to antibody formation. The antibody will remove the antigen and the illness will subside, or the inflammatory response subsides. So you can have an initial inflammatory response. The question is, how is it regulated? It's lack of regulation that leads to the persistent illness. And then there was a question earlier. Does the DNA testing indicate who is sick or who has the potential to become sick? And maybe I will add for them, or can it indicate both? What you look at with uh, the gene assays is percentages. So it's all statistics. Uh, For example, we we know that there are uh, some particular microRNAs that have to do with vascular permeability. They always are making some of these compounds, but they're accentuated in disease. So it's not mere presence of, of one DNA marker, one, one mRNA marker. It really is, you know, is this statistically increased compared to control? And we don't yet have the capability of doing, you know, one gene at a time. Uh, with testing, we, we get all the tests done that, that are on this particular chip that does these analyses and then we analyze them individually. So as we get forward, go forward, there are clusters of gene groups that act differently in cases it controls by one disease type. So even though we can look and see a number of genes and say, yes, this is definitely a sick person, the genomics test does not give us every bit of information we need. Okay, Cliff, I know you had a question. Yeah, I, I do, doctor. I'm, I'm a little bit confused. Um, in, I guess my confusion is really about the staff. Um, you know, typically in water-damaged buildings, there's a big concentration on fungi. And what I'm asking is in this deep nasal, you know, where, where you're getting this colonization of, of this unusual staff, are you also having fungal colonization as well, or is it more about no. the bacteria. No. Our, uh, we, we have a very low return on, on our fungal cultures. You know, I, I know that Eugene Kern and, 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 and David Sheris and, and Tom Stankov's group in, uh, that had been in Mayo, now it's at, at SUNY Buffalo, have looked at, at fungi in sinuses. I don't have the capability of doing sinus cultures. I can only do deep nasal cultures, and we don't find much at all in way of fungal colonization in these assays. The coagulase-negative staffs are certainly enriched uh, in, in, in water-damaged buildings when people actually will culture for them. 
Uh, and that's one reservoir where people could be exposed. But it's the host factor of low MSH that lets these organisms colonize and then stay in biofilm in the human host. Thank you. Okay. Now, I'd like to get into a little bit on, on the papers that, that uh, and the presentations that you did at the bioaerosols conference. And I know one of them that you were... You, you mentioned briefly earlier was the VIP and the, the vasoactive intestinal polypeptide corrects chronic inflammatory response syndrome acquired following exposure to water damage buildings. So you've, you've been working on using the VIP in a nasal spray, as I understand it, to help correct the chronic inflammatory response in some of your patients. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that? I had IRB approval, or Institutional Review Board approval, for a human experiment uh, that got started in January of 2010. <clears throat> and I took people who met the entry criteria for the study. Basically, they had to be sick as a dog and nothing else would fix them. Uh, and then after we corrected everything that my protocols would do uh, and supervising under time, we showed that they had metabolic consequences of low levels of this hormone, this regulatory neuropeptide, and what we used is the rise of pulmonary artery pressure and exercise. This is one of the things that make people think they have asthma when they're in water damaged buildings because they get short of breath and they wheeze when they exercise. Well, of that group, some might be wheezing from lung, but a very large percentage are actually having lung problems from VIP deficiency and pulmonary artery pressures are just going up way more what they should. You give them VIP back where it should be, and you restore regulation of pulmonary artery pressure. So that helps them feel better on one thing. That was an entry criteria. If they had that, we then uh, gave them VIP, 50 micrograms, four times a day uh, for one month, repeated the pulmonary artery pressure study, followed all these lab abnormalities that we looked at that we thought might be important, then downwards titrated the dose down to two doses a day for a month and one dose a day and then off. And by September 2011, I had 18 months follow-up on this cohort of patients, sick as can be. And quite frankly, what we were looking at was durability of safety of the drug, so that was important, but also durability of efficacy. And what had happened is that people who had been sick and repeatedly with going into water-damaged buildings one after another started to downregulate their reactivity with VIP. A lot of the respiratory symptoms went. The neurologic functioning uh, improved when we lowered TGF-beta-1. Uh, some MS-like pictures started to improve. Parkinson's tremors started to improve. We also normalized MMP9. We normalized the compound called VEGF that is usually deficient in people with problems related to water-damaged buildings. That improved. Vitamin D uh, physiology improved. Uh, it was a basically uh, kind of a a joyous study to do because basically I've been looking at people who've been housebound and bedbound and, and disabled and 18 months later, you know, they're, they're playing golf and jogging. Now, VIP is, is not a benign drug and there's a cost to it. It's compounded. Um, it's one that you may not give to somebody, in my mind, if they have a positive visual contrast test because that means they still have ongoing inflammatory responses from a toxin that aren't, aren't fixed. We know if you you jump in and use VIP prematurely, you won't get benefit. You have to fix the inflammatory issues as best you can. If you've got a positive culture, 
uh, nasal culture. You should never use VIP. And here's the big deal for for the indoor air quality people. If your ERMI, granted, ERMI's got lots of warts on it, but if your ERMI was over two, and we can argue about ERMI, and, and hopefully we'll have time to talk about my Hertz V2 score, if your ERMI's over two, VIP doesn't do much at all. So if you have a criteria, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. I'm sorry, Val got you with the uh, acronym police there. Just for to be on the safe side, that's the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index, ERMI. And what's VIP again? Vasoactive intestinal polypeptide. Vasoactive. All right. Now let me let's move into the um, before the the acronym police get me Her, hurts me H E R T S M I two you read my mind that's next on my list another presentation you did this is where you're using I I the ERMI score and as I understand it and I I just looked at it briefly here you're trying to determine if a building is is all right for people to be in that have had previous um, CRS uh, from water damaged buildings. Is that somewhat accurate? That's, that's right on the button. What we wanted to do is get around some of the arguments from the mycologists uh, and the mathematicians about Hermie and say, can we use the DNA of fungi only to identify organisms that are present that tell us about water-saturated conditions. And if so, there should be a group of organisms that are present in high ERMI scores versus those present in low ERMI scores. And sure enough, there are. And when we broke this down, we looked at 729 uh, tests that were done consecutively by people reporting things to me. Uh, we had 140-so that were ERMI less than two, and, and, and the rest were... 580 or so, we're, we're over two. We found a factor of 10 to 1 enrichment with five separate organisms that helped me with water saturation. We looked for water saturation of 90 to 100%. We used ketomium and stachybotrys. We used 80 to 90%. Uh, and they're the only two that really stood out were aspergillus versicolor and aspergillus penicilloides. Uh, all the other aspergillus, aspergilli, didn't really give me this 10 to 1 relationship. Uh, but those two represent 80 to 90% water saturation. And then the big deal, one I think is vastly underestimated, is wallemia. Wallemia historically is 60 to 80% water saturated conditions, and that lights up like crazy when people have HVAC problems, uh, especially when they run in ductwork through, through call spaces uh, in basements. But those five organisms, if we look at the percentages or the numbers they have, and then we assign a weighted index, four points for one level, six points for a higher level, ten points for the highest level. We then said, all right, what separates people that are well versus people that are not well? And ten or below for this hurts me score, um, and that's health effects roster of type-specific formers of mycotoxins and inflammatories. That's where that acronym comes from. If we found that uh, we had a score of 10 or below when people were re-exposed after having been sickened previously and then treated, they did not reacquire illness. For people with 16 or more, uh, they were guaranteed to reacquire illness with reacquisition. Now, 11 to 15 was a gray zone because some people got sick and some people didn't. And all I can say is if you've got a Hertz me 2 score of 11 to 15, you've got some more cleaning to do. Uh, more remediation to do before you go any further. 
But the issues are that we now, and it's always been a big deal in indoor air quality, we now have a fungal measure that helps tell us about subsequent, it's predictive of subsequent human health if the person has been sickened previously. It doesn't help me tell the control patient that they're going to get sick, not get sick. That control patient may be not asking the same questions. Is someone who says, I had to sell my house because it was moldy, but everywhere I go makes me sick now as well. Where can I go? Now we have something to give these people to say, uh, do your army and do the hurts me too, and statistically you'll be fine. That ties into a question. I have a text question from a listener, and it says here, most protocols for remediation are being written by hygienists who often tend to minimize both protocol and risk of chronic inflammatory risks uh, syndrome. Uh, I'm sorry, chronic inflammatory response syndrome. How do we educate these folks that are out there writing the protocols is his question. Well, I think it's a reasonable question. Obviously, there's some assumptions involved. Uh, physicians are not indoor hygienists, and indoor hygienists are not physicians. And, and we need to keep that clear. But the real issue is that the indoor hygienist could read published peer-reviewed literature on chronic inflammatory response syndromes. Uh, there's, there's several sections on survivingmold.com to take a look at. Uh, Michael Pinto has put a nice series of papers on his approach to remediation, and we welcome other opinions if they're not consistent with mine or, or, or Mr. Pinto's, but the idea is that we must be cleaning to levels that will protect susceptible individuals from, say, 1,000 or 2,000 or 6,000 molecules of inflammagen or toxigen. I mean, Joe, this, this is intimidating. If we look at Avogadro's number of 1 times 10 to the 23rd, and I'm telling you 6,000 molecules will make you sick, how do you clean to 1 times 10 to the minus 20th grams? It's, it's, it's hard. It's impossible, some people might say. But if you don't have that approach in mind, your cleaning will not result in establishing a satisfactory environment for one of my patients or one of the, well, I think, be millions of patients that are in the U.S. And not all people have low MSH and high C4A and high TGF-beta-1. But if I have an insurance man looking over my shoulder, uh, I'm not going to remediate without knowing what those metabolic parameters are. Because if I put someone who's light-sensitive, HLA is susceptible, uh, and, and they've been untreated TGF-beta-1, I do the very best I can to, to clean, and I put somebody back in there and they get sick again, you know, I'm running the risk of a lawsuit, a failure to remediate. And I, I fear that that is, that is going to become uh, the, the, the next phase of, of the mold litigation. Fair enough. Now, I, there's one other paper that I want, or actually it's a presentation that I wanted you to comment on, then we'll go to our roundup. It's the one on T-regulatory cells in chronic inflammatory response syndrome from water-damaged buildings. Can you just give our listeners a little overview on what that presentation was? What we look at with T-regulatory cells is a very small subset of white blood cells. Remember, we're not talking about the, the cells with multiple lobes to the nucleus or polymorphonuclear cells or neutrophils. We're looking at round cells, and they can be macrophages or monocytes or lymphocytes. And lymphocytes come in all varieties. It could be B cells or antibody formers or uh, 
natural killer cells or helper cells or memory cells. All those are important, but there's a small group of these T lymphocytes that are regulatory. They are in, they're made by the thymus. They're also induced to mature in blood from the rising levels of TGF beta 1. Now, TGF beta 1 will induce TH17 uh, immunity, and it's, it's, it's huge what it does in lung, causes remodeling and asthma like pictures to develop. But TGF beta 1 will stimulate these T reg cells to mature and migrate into tissue. I focus always on what's in blood or the humoral response. Now we're looking at tissue-based innate immunity. And in tissue, Treg cells suppress inflammation and suppress autoimmunity, except, here's the big except, if there is preformed elevated levels in tissue of interleukin-10 and IL-17. This preformed tissue-based inflammation does something pretty nasty to our good friends, the Treg cells. It changes them. It makes them pathogenic, and they release now more TGF-beta-1. So this developing positive feedback loop of inflammation begets TGF-beta-1, begets TGF-beta-1, begets TGF-beta-1, will be marked by progressive lack of Treg cells in blood. Remember, blood is not gut. We're not looking at gut. It's a very, very different tissue. You cannot describe what goes on in the gut and anything else as far as Tregs go. But specifically, what we look at is now TGF-beta-1 and Treg cell deficiency. What is that associated with? Those are the neurologic patients. Those are the worst of the kids with the funny seizures. Those are the people with tremors. Those are the people with these funny tics. Boy, I wonder about those kids up in New York with their tics. You know, certainly in surviving mold, I have a whole family I wrote about with tics, and, and mold illness does do that. It sure does. But if Tregs are low and TGF-beta-1 is high, that means tissue basis of innate immunity, which is another layer of treatment that must be accessed to help people recover from this chronic inflammatory response syndrome. It's not just in blood, but it's in tissue, too. And did you did I see that there, the VIP also assist, or did you mention that already with, with this issue? I, I mentioned it probably too fast and too many acronyms. Thanks for not bringing the police. <laughs> Thank you. But basically, VIP drives up levels of Treg cells. Okay. And it is so wonderful. The worst Treg patients, the worst deficiency ones, are people getting IV, IG, or the intravenous immune globulin, and children. Children is where this, this plasticity aspect of Tregs is huge. When you find adults with, with Treg cell levels of 4, 5, 6, and 7, you know, they should be 18 to 20, uh, they're in trouble. When you fix them with treatment protocols, you can get them back to 16 to 20. That's pretty good. If they, if they still have cognitive issues left over and you give them VIP, you'll drive those Tregs up in the 20s. And it's fascinating. The MS drugs that we use, these, these beta interferon drugs, all to a single one drive up levels of Treg cells. So I'm looking at, at my group of people who have clear MS who are also moldy. When you fix their mold problem, normalize their TGF-beta-1 and normalize their Treg cells, guess what happens to their MS-like symptoms? They go away. It is just like, wow, what is going on with this illness? Huh. We're just exploring the tip of the iceberg and what uh, genomics and, and Treg cells and VIP 
is going to bring to people who have been sickened for so long and gotten so little attention from, well, a whole series of folks. But that, that world's over. That, that world's gone. Well, the is published. The genomic stuff is coming out. Uh, it's a new day. We really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us about this, too. We're running low on time. I want to get to the roundup and bring in Dr. Wow. I know he has a, at least a question, probably have several comments. Do you have to run right out of here? Not a bit. Okay. Let's do it. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Let's get Dr. Wow on. Oh, do you have his? Uh... Good day, Dieter. How are you? I know the first one was not Beethoven. I knew that right away. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions I or have, comments? I mean, I have a ton of questions, really. Um. And I started off uh, with something that I ran across. It has nothing to do with the topics. I get back to those we were talking about today. When somebody wanted to try to convince me that he was suffering from low carbon monoxide poisoning at 1 ppm or something like this, which obviously doesn't do anything to anybody. <clears throat> How do we reconcile that people who are reacting inside a building, and I'm the first one to admit that I wouldn't want to live in a house that has a wet basement and mold all over. No doubt about that. But anyway, how do we reconcile that when I take air measurements outside buildings where people, outside schools where people are living, and the numbers are in the 30,000, 40,000 spores per cubic meter of air. And inside the house, they are much, much lower. Now, I'm well aware that there may be a different uh, type of uh, mold outside than on the inside. The next question I have, where do these mold spores come from originally? And we have been living with them for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Where do they come from? Well, they come from the outside, right? Where were we? Where were our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfathers when we were exposed to them, and apparently they survived, otherwise we would not be here. And uh, I am, I'm, I'm fascinated uh, what Dr. Shoemaker uh, uh, said, that you know, we basically, he developed a test which will show which person is sensitive uh, to something or not. I worked with that uh, a problem years ago when I worked for Bayer Chemical Corporation, and we were trying to figure out whether we could select people who could be exposed to certain chemicals <clears throat> which were manufactured at the plants could we identify people, those people, 
who would get sensitized and would not get sensitized. We knew, we knew there was something about it. Because the same people on the same shift, uh, they, they were exposed to the same, peop uh, same thing, and some responded to it and some didn't. Well, I don't have asthma, fortunately. I don't react to things like that. I react to irritants. Um, but that is the one thing where, where I say, is there really a fingerprint, <laughs> in triple quotation marks, that will tell me, is that, yep, this person has it and this one will not. Well, let's, let's get Dr. Shoemaker's uh, opinion on that. Doctor? Well, let's, let's start with, with the fingerprint. We feel that when we put together a medical history, uh, exposures, blood proteins and genomics that we sure do have a fingerprint absolutely uh, and, and that's that to me is one of the exciting things uh, of, of today's presentation but I want to shift to your second question and that is your idea that the mold spores have been with us for years and centuries and centuries and centuries well I'm not sure that's true uh, I think what's happened in the era of use of particular fungicides is that we have induced mutations in fungi. And if you read the Benamil chapter in Surviving Mold, I go through a reference list of there's about 60 different organisms where we have clear evidence that they are uh, coming out of exposure to Benamil and surviving. The marker is beta-tubulin-1 and then acetyl-O-methyltransferase uh, enzyme. This grouping of, of genes that is found in these Benamil survivors, these, these mutant fungi, provides the opportunity to move an acetyl group from deep down into a mycotoxin out to an external area where it's recognized by compounds called phycolins that will induce an enzyme called the, well, here's the acronym police, the uh, uh, mannose-binding lectin-associated serine protease 2 that's the one that cleaves C4 to make C4A. Before these mutants were around, and the penicilliums and aspergillus and the ketomiums and, the, and stachys are all on this list, together with trichoderma and molyemia as well, until their compounds had an exposed acetyl group, phycolins ignored them. And they were almost a stealth antigen that would not set off an inflammatory response. Uh, back in the 70s, when paint companies started putting Benamil in paint uh, for indoors to control Aureobacidium pullulans, I think we unleashed some organisms that have spread throughout uh, invertebrate biology that have these beta-2-beta-1 markers as well as acetyl-methyltransferase. So that's, that's one concern about why is this illness different. I think it has nothing to do with OPEC oil in 1970s uh, changing of housing techniques at all. Uh, I think it's due to changing the organisms. To test that, when I went to Galapagos, where there was none of this fungicide use, tried to find, uh, going into different buildings that had water damage, uh, to see if I could make my own self sick, I couldn't. And then the same thing up in Scotland a couple of years ago, uh, looking around in some of these very old buildings, you know, hundreds of years old, could I make myself sick in these dank stone structures? The answer was no. Do I think the organisms are different? Yeah. Have we proven that with research? No. Is there literature suggestive? Yes. Uh, it's worth looking at. The question about indoor versus outdoor um, is, is one that I, I really think we need to 
look at what kinds of antigens are these organisms making. You know, to date, I'm not worried about, you know, 50,000 Aspergillus species outdoors. Uh, I am more worried about 150 Wallemia indoors. And the different antigen profiles these organisms bring is important. More importantly than, than just, the, say, a fungus, we don't know about bacterial uh, products interacting with fungal products indoors. You know, is this in the end, as we might expect, a synergistic or an interactive uh, interplay between a variety of sources of inflammogens? Well, studies from Finland would say, yes, we have to keep that in mind. But I go back to what uh, learning treatises like the GAO from 2008 and then World Health Organization from 2009 say we can't point to one substance indoors and say this did it. There's no specific causation. It is a mixture of compounds found inside, not found outside in the same mixture, that creates the illness. So inside versus outside doesn't help me too much. I've yet to find my first person sick in outdoors. I know there's some indoor hygienists uh, that, that disagree with that, and that's fine. I just need to see their data and make sure that, that we're talking about the same thing. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're just getting started now, finally, at the molecular frontier, the threshold to say, what's going on with the gene? Because the genomics, I feel, will give us the answer. And any more now, uh, if I don't have a genomics test on someone, I know that my database is incomplete. And you've only been able to do these genomics the last, what, five to eight years? Is that about right? Well, I've been collecting them for five years, but we've been running them for the last, uh, well, we started last year. Okay, great. <coughs> Dieter. Now, there's another, here's another problem that, that yeah, <coughs> I, I, I throw in. Uh, I read papers, and somebody estimates there are 50,000 fungi, the other one 100,000 fungi, yeah. and another one 2 million different fungi, yeah. which have been around, and I don't know which number is correct. I certainly didn't count them myself. <laughs> um, but, I mean, my, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, we are insulted by a, a shotgun. <laughs> Loaded with uh, mold spores, and yeah, do they all react? Do we ignore the ones about which we know nothing? Uh, that is a question to me. Well, let's try to figure out what should the physician do, given the uncertainty, to what caused the problem. Do we take what I call the toxicological approach and say, we don't have enough data, therefore we should not act? Or does the physician have enough information to act on its own, saying my job is not to sit here and count the geese, you know, flying overhead if we're out hunting ducks. My job is to bring home the ducks if that's what my job is. So right. my duty is to fix the best I can what I can, even if I don't have all the information. Of course, the responsibility is to do no harm as you are fixing people. Of course. But, but you're right. We don't know whether it's an interaction between a gram-negative or uh, a fungus from Peru. At the same time, if we've got a sick person, they don't really care what made them sick. They want to know how to get better. Yeah, well, I understand that. And what is, un what is very interesting to me, I'm at the tender age of almost 73, and I'm one of the few people in the world, I think, I never, ever had a cold, and I never, ever had the flu in my whole life that I can remember. Which is unbelievable. <laughs> Good and memory problems. I, what did you say? 
I was teasing. Do you have memory problems? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> Do you have memory problems? Absolutely not. It is absolutely incredible. And I was, here's another thing, and Joe knows that one. And yeah, we are talking about antibodies and stuff like that. Uh, I was never vaccinated. That had something to do with the fact where I was born. And when I got back to Germany, that was called the Second World War. And we had other things to do than getting vaccinated. And I had my blood tested in a study at the Graduate School of Public Health, University of Pittsburgh, years ago. And somebody needed my blood sample to look at my antibodies. And I said, you have antibodies against the mumps and that and that and diphtheria and you name it. And I said, I never, ever got vaccinated to it. And I said, and I said, I never had those diseases. I said, well, you did subclinically. So, I mean, this is another thing which is amazing to me. You sound like the best control patient in the world. You want to have a blood sample? I wish we had blood from you when you were 50, 60, and 70, because we stratify our controls by age and gender. At 73, we've already got enough enrichment in our adult population there, but I would love to see what your numbers are, and I predict that your T-regs were just perfect and your VIP was not a problem and you wouldn't have C4A 10,000. If you tell me if you can do that later on, I gladly give you a blood sample. I'll tell you why. We put in a multiple draw. I have to go to get my protein because I'm on a blood thinner, uh, which is called rat poison, also known <laughs> as porphyrin. And but it sounds so much better, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. well, I, mean, gladly, I gladly give you a blood sample. That's no problem at all. You tell me in what um, uh, ampule you want it, and we have it. Well, we need to talk to your physicians so we don't get in trouble with treating people we haven't met. So there you go. That's all right, too. But, but Joe can I, help, help you to go between there. Absolutely. I find a release. No all problem. right. Well, listen, we've got um, recently had a case where the vet told a client the dog has a mold allergy, should have the house tested. Have you ever heard of that before? Uh, no, I, I think that's a pretty clever vet. I would hope that the that would also think about inflammatory problems, not just allergy from mold. Interesting. Well, anything you'd like to add before we go, Dr. Shoemaker? This has been fun. And, Dieter, as always, thanks for joining us. One, one of the things... Good old pleasure, you know that. One of the things I've maintained is, is the service you provide to this industry uh, is, is just outstanding. And I'm delighted that you permitted me to come on your show. Uh, I'll just tell you that we've got a couple items... Uh, that are cooking right now that I think will be of interest as well. So maybe in six months, uh, give me another call or another email. But as you continue to educate, you will bring hope and help to a vast variety of people that otherwise would be possibly helpless and possibly helpless. So I thank you for your service. Well, thank, thank you. Cliff has one more. Yeah, I, think, I, I just have one, one question for you before we get off. What was the name of that fungicide? I just wanted to do some research on it that was in the paint that you think is, you know, was causing some problems. Uh, it's Benamil. How do you spell it? B-E-N-O-M uh, as in Mary, Y-L. Okay, thanks. Just look, just look under mutagenic agents. Uh, at, at, at about three parts per billion, it remains one of the most potent mutagenic fungal agents there is. Thanks. One that it's unusual. Cliff hadn't heard of that one. He's been uh, heavily into that well, side not, of the no, industry. Not, not paint. Not paint preservation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, thanks again, Doctor Shoemaker. We always appreciate having you, and look forward to talking to you down the road.
Thanks a lot. See you guys. Uh, Bye-bye. Right. Our pleasure. Bye. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to uh, what, Roxy V. Yeah, All right. Roxy V, Val Bender <laughs> at the controls, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Of course, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us. But most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, we're going to figure out why we've had people getting booted off the calls here. Something's going on with TalkShoe. We're going to have a chat with them this week, and we'll be back next Friday at noon. By the way, we've got Wayne Baker and Tony Havocs, and Dr. Dieter will be back, and we've got an interesting show. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, aerosol physics and particulate counting and particle counters and air filtration devices and how to test these air filtration devices so we're looking forward to a great show next week come back and join us next friday at noon for the next episode of iaq radio i don't care if it hurts i'm tired of lies and all these games i've reached a point in life has been another IAQ Radio production.